everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Deanna Zanatos, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Norton Children's Hospital, UofL School of Medicine. I'm also a member of the PCICS podcasting committee. And my name is Sadie Rodriguez. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory, and a member of PCICS podcasting committee as well. So today, Deanna and I are really excited because PCICS is celebrating their 25th anniversary, and we wanted to really dedicate some time to lift up stories and voices of people that have contributed to its evolution. And today, we have the honor and the privilege to speak to Dr. Mary Taylor and Dr. Sarah Tabbitt. If you guys could introduce yourselves to everybody. I'm Mary Taylor. I am chair of pediatrics at Children's of Mississippi in Jackson, Mississippi. I have been a member of PCICS probably since its inception. I am trained in pediatric cardiology and critical care and did most of my training at Vanderbilt and some in Boston where Sarah and I intersected during our training. I'm Sarah Tabbitt. I'm a cardiac intensivist currently at UCSF in San Francisco and previously 10 years at Children's in Philadelphia. I've been around as long as Mary has, also double boarded both uh, fellowships at Boston Children's, where as Mary mentioned is where we first met each other. Finished my fellowship in 98, so have been part of PCICS since that time. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I want to kick us off, and I want you guys to just help us travel back in time a little bit, take us back to the late 90s, early 2000s, where, you know, pediatric cardiac critical care is really like taking its own as a field and evolving at a really quick pace, and not a lot of women in medicine. How did you first hear about PCICS, and what was your first impression? When I went into cardiac critical care, it really wasn't much of a common thing to do. I had done cardiology fellowship first and then went to Boston to work in their cardiac ICU. It was one of the only cardiac ICUs at the time in the country and had known that I was going to go back to Vanderbilt and do critical care fellowship as well. And I think, um, you know, it's just become more of a trend to do additional training and, to, and for it to become a subspecialty. Dave Wessel was the leader of their cardiac ICU at the time. And I think that idea for the ICU society had kind of started, um, but wasn't really a formalized group, so to speak, and there weren't really meetings or those types of things. The initial meetings weren't really about the presentation, but I think it was really an effort to kind of more formalize our experience across the country, since no one institution had a lot of experience with that field, to really kind of collate all the information that people had across the country and bring people's ideas and thoughts together to hopefully advance the care that we provide to the complex patients. So it was also an opportunity to meet the people who were in that field. Um, I think at the time when Sarah and I were in those two training programs, you know, doing both cardiology and critical care, there were only, I think, 18 people or fewer that had done two fellowships at that time, and they were coming up with a way to formalize that. Yes, sort of the same as Mary, you know, a step before the society was just how to become a cardiac intensivist, especially as a woman at that time. Generally speaking, most people who were going into cardiac ICU were doing a fourth year of training, and most people were doing that fourth year at Boston. So when I was coming through fellowship, that fourth year had never been, a woman never had that slot. So I talked to Peter Lawson, who was my mentor at that time, and he said, you know, if 
you really want to do this, you probably shouldn't count on the fourth year and just go ahead and get critical care boards, which is like the best advice I ever I ever had. So the year ahead of us was Steve Schwartz and Dave Nelson, who were both also at Boston, and then Mary and I came along behind that. And the PCICS really, you know, the three people that kind of started it up were Dave Wessel, as Mary mentioned, uh, Anthony Chang, and Gil Wernowski, who were all critical cardiac critical care faculty at that time at Boston. And so that is sort of came out of Boston. And in fact, Teresa had done her fellowship at Boston, mm-hmm. and she came on as I think she was sort of a glorified secretary to start <laughs> taking the minutes mostly for the meetings and the calls. And as Mary mentioned, as I remember it, the first meetings we had were more people getting together and sharing ideas and socializing as much as it, it wasn't like it is now where it's like, you know, a real conference with people coming from all over and giving talks. It was more informal. In fact, I think I remember at one of the early meetings, everyone sitting around and Dave Wessel just saying, oh, Sarah, could you get up and present? I was doing a project comparing inhaled carbon dioxide to hypoxic gas mixtures and hypoclass. So he just asked me to present. So, you know, I didn't really prepare. I just presented. <laughs> uh, that's just, that's kind of how, that's kind of how it was uh, at the beginning. A lot of talking about how to organize our field, how to get people together. And then it just, it grew from there. To tag on what she was just saying about the two fellowships, it was someone at Vanderbilt had given me the same advice about doing the two fellowships and completing both fellowships. And that was fantastic advice that I've advised people to this day along the same lines. I think it really adds a lot more, I don't want to say credibility, but just a lot of, a stronger foundation. And at that time, I think that was really critically important, um, particularly for women in the field. Since there were so few people, it just added some weight to the experience and it's really helped throughout the years, really. It's kind of surprising to me that we still haven't come to a consensus about the training and there's, there's still a million different ways to get into the field and whether you're cardiology foundation or critical care foundation, you know, in the fourth year position. So it's funny to me that that's still up in the air, so to speak, but I guess it is encouraging that most cardiac ICUs, however, have moved more and more towards having trained people. Wow. That's great. I didn't realize that you two were among the first 18 people who had done the double boarding. That's really very impressive and very, you know, forward thinking of both of you to do that and take it upon yourselves to go ahead and and get that training. So, you know, it sounds like everything kind of really started in Boston. And how has the society kind of helped over the years to disseminate that information and, and grow the field? And do you think when you all were at those early meetings that you had a vision for how the society was going to grow and how the field was going to grow? I don't remember us being so forethinking. I really think <laughs> it was a chance for people to get together. You know, everybody was working crazy long hours. It was a group of people that sympathized with what you were doing and understood what you were doing. Um, it was generally, and I, I think Nancy and I am going to jump on in a couple minutes, but all of us will say, I think it was all guys and just a few women. There was a lot of big talk that we might get to where we are now, but we moved at really a snail's pace at the beginning, for uh-huh. sure. I think getting the membership it was it has always been a challenge from the beginning, but only in recent years has it really kind of exponentially grown. We've always, I think, from the very beginning, it was primarily physicians in the society, but 
relatively quickly kind of expanded to include nursing and other services, ancillary services, advanced practice providers, and those types of things. And we've tried to really encourage participation by all levels of people, including people in training and to get people involved earlier on. It's really exciting that the membership has grown so much. You know, you kind of have to think back that at the time, the internet was not as big a thing either. So having a web presence and social media presence was not a thing, nor was it certainly wasn't in my vision of where it could go. But now having that, like even having things like this podcast are things that would be hard to really picture back in the day. I mean, you had to kind of get together in groups in person and there was not really an opportunity for kind of widespread communication that we can have now and have even international membership. Yeah, I totally agree with Nancy. And I forgot about that, how we did start out as just a physician subgroup. And at some point, uh, somebody had the great idea to add nursing and that immediately like doubled the membership. Um, And I I really think nursing is a big driver of PCICS now um, and has really moved moved the society forward. The meetings were always in Miami, and that originally was because Anthony Chang loves to organize meetings. And Anthony Chang, as you know, left Boston and went to Miami right around this time. So it was and he loves nice places to have the meetings too. Yeah, and it's a nice place to have a meeting. <laughs> uh, yeah. So when we were a smaller group, we were at like I think we were even at the Breakers one year. Yes. And uh, the Ritz, as we had been talking about earlier, and then as the, as the society got bigger, we had to move. Uh, down to South Beach to the larger hotels. Yeah, I mean, it was always a nice collegial, I mean, it's a really unusual conference and meeting at the time because it was so small. I mean, most conferences and meetings you go to, American Heart Association, or you know, these gigantic meetings and you're walking long distances to try to catch part of a talk and that kind of thing. It was much more colloquial and, you know, give and take and audience participation, so to speak. And, you know, people really communicating and having conversations about the care and learning from each other. So it was really a perfect kind of setup for learning more about a new field and kind of improving what we do. It's nice that it's more or less stayed fairly small. I mean, now there are people there that I don't know, but early on, everybody knew everyone at the meeting and, you know, really feel like you're kind of part of a big family which is nice. Yeah. You know, I'm getting the sense intimate. There's a lot of um, informal, just like free exchange of ideas going on. There's a lot of excitement, creativity. When you reflect back on the evolution of your career and your trajectory, I mean, all those names that you guys mentioned earlier, like really well-known leaders in the field that you got to sort of grow up with. What's the impact that you think that the society and having that sort of like close connection with other people during that time had on your career vision or trajectory? I mean, I think it's just really been an incredible thing to me to stay in touch with these people over the course of years. Now, you know, I've been doing this for 25 plus years and still know those same people, still keep in touch with those same people, still see those same people, can have their cell phone and call them and talk to them and can communicate about things. And they've really been very strong mentors. Sarah mentioned Peter Lawson being a mentor. You know, they've been very much mentors about where your career can go. I think it's just helped the care of children with congenital heart disease in general. I'm in Mississippi. I'm from Mississippi originally, but spent the first part of my career in Nashville at Vanderbilt um, and moved here to help start a congenital heart surgery program. 
and in this part of the you know there's very poor access to care in this state and i think it's just kind of critical that you know many many children died and weren't able to get to a center because it was just too much too difficult for them to travel and get there so i think it's been really kind of very very impactful in ways that people don't really even realize how much it's helped spread this field across the country and have it be more or less regionalized but you know we're the only children's hospital in the entire state of mississippi and for mississippi's children have to try to travel to boston was very much a near impossibility so i think it's been really great to be able to keep in communication with those early leaders and have them help guide how to set that up and how to how to do those those things actually i think i'll just jump in to introduce nancy ganam who's just joined the call and was also at all those early PCICS meetings. So I don't know, Nancy, if you want to just introduce yourself briefly, and then you can jump into the questions. Sure. I'm Nancy Ganeum. I am now at University of Chicago as Chief of Critical Care, um, and the cardiac test was at Advocate Children's Hospital. When I started with PCICS, I was in Milwaukee directing their cardiac ICU or beginning to build a cardiac ICU and I was there for almost 20 years, or over 20 years, and then including training. And then went to Texas Children's for a short stint before I came back to Chicago. Yeah, thanks for joining. I was just going to add to what Mary said about those early meetings. Like, I remember very clearly meeting leaders in the field that I never would have talked to before, like a long conversation with Ed Beauvais at the poolside. You know, it was just an opportunity to um, Jim Twettle, I met at those meetings, just people that I wouldn't really. I've read about, I've read their papers, I know who they are, but a chance to just have conversations with them and they'd just be as interested in what I was doing in the ICU as obviously I was interested in what they do. And from that, you know, there's a core group of people, Mary and um, Nancy are two of them. I probably have like six or seven people, my level, Laura Shekadani and Catherine, that I can call in a minute's notice if something just comes up, I can't figure out what to do, whether it's about my career or a patient, and they'll answer the phone right away, they'll answer the question. It's just, it's a really great um, support system, and that all came from us getting to know each other in the early years. And as some of the first women who had pursued this training pathway, what was that like? I can imagine that you were some of the most highly trained people who at that time, who were women in the country. Did you find yourselves kind of gravitating together within the society? Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like for you kind of paving the way for the rest of us. So what helped early on was that actually I had the opportunity to work and learn from Sarah when I was in Philadelphia. Otherwise, the only way I could get to know other women in the field was through the society uh, because there really was no other venue that there was a focus on cardiac ICU and that was small enough that you really could network. It wasn't like the American Heart Association, which is so large and you don't necessarily see people. One of the things I was encouraged to do early in my experience was actually go to a surgical meeting and which I've done almost every year. I've gone to a surgical meeting to hear what our stakeholders are talking about and really get to network. So it really was the only way I got to know Mary and Lara and so many others, Catherine, was through, and Therese was really through PCICS. There was really no other venue to make those connections. So that was really helpful. But Sarah, I had the opportunity to meet beforehand, but everyone else I met in the field was through PCICS. Every other woman that was in the field was through PCICS. Yeah. And I also would say that 
have met all these great people through PCICS and been encouraged to be part of the society, to be part of like, say, this connections committee or that kind of thing. You know, when, when we first started breaking into these little subgroups, Sarah and I worked on, uh, I think, one of the first website and, you know, some of those kinds of things. You know, it was another chance to get to meet people and get to know people by working together on little side projects through the society, which is also very good. You know, Therese has been on the membership path and has really done a tremendous job making that happen. But, you know, working with people on those types of things and brainstorming about ways to do it better. I think that's been another thing aside from the clinical implications of the society. I don't know if we can say it's all from the society, but I'm sure the society is a huge contributor to the exponential increase in the number of women in the field. You know, Catherine just did that workforce survey. And in my age group, double boarded females, there's one, it's probably me. Since I have the PhD, I out-age everybody on this call. But currently for women under age of 40, if you look at cardiac intensivists under the age of 40, there are more women than there are men now. So the field has definitely like shifted. And hopefully a lot of that is from the society, you know, people seeing that this is something that women can do, even though the training is, you know, significant and the work hours are significant and balancing everything can be a challenge. But it's definitely I think women are really going to really changing the field. Yeah, I'll mention that you said that about the work-life balance. When I went to Boston, I have three children, but the, I had only two at the time, and one started kindergarten in Boston. And we, I came with a, a nanny, and I had an 18-month-old and a five-year-old, and came to Boston to work, and then went back to Vanderbilt to do another fellowship. But it's definitely doable, and I think, like, and Sarah, I think, had your children about the same time or shortly after that. And I think, you know, it's just... Um, demonstrating that it can be done and have family and, you know, do other things, just kind of encourage people to participate and it definitely opens the field to women. I commend you all for having the courage and the vision to be pioneers. And I mean, sorry, we're calling this the trailblazing women because it's, you know, people like you guys who were able to come together and have community and find support within each other, even though you're so physically, you know, apart thing that was I think the most striking to me is that was the fact that women really were not supporting women well. So it wasn't that we as women cardiac intensivists who became friends over the years weren't supporting each other from a distance, but locally, it was a little bit more challenging to be a woman in the field because of obvious reasons, but women not supporting women very well was internal uh, nursing supporting the women physicians was very different. So what was considered brash and too intimidating and too directive from a woman could have been the exact same delivery from one of the cute young men on, on the team. And then it was okay. So there were some challenges. So it wasn't all roses uh, coming up in the field. For me, the challenges weren't from the male physicians on the team. It was more from how we were treated by other women. That's a really interesting observation. And I think, you know, it's something that that we still talk about today. I had a very similarly themed conversation with one of our fellows recently. I think we largely because of you three women and and the other women like you who have been blazing the trail for us, 
but we still have a long way to go. How do you think the society can help or how we as individuals in the field can help continue to, to slowly move the needle a little bit to where we are a community that supports other women? I think one of the big things that we really, I'd say it's been the last four years, um, the program committee has made a huge effort to shift the speakers away from just the men. I believe, I can't pull out of my hat the year it was, but I'd say probably around 17 or 18 where Chitra Ravishankar actually pointed it out to me and I passed it on to Peter Lawson, who at that time was the president, that there were only 18% of the speakers were women. And now, you know, it's really shifted in another direction. And I think it's super important that not only are they doing the work, but they're, you know, presenting the science and presenting their experiences and not just sitting in the audience. I think it's up to us to really bring them along. So we didn't have the women role models. We were friends and we learned from each other, but we didn't have we weren't fellows and young instructors that had these role models. And I think we need to spend that extra time identifying the women in the field and providing mentorship to them, whether it's mentorship at a clinical level, research level, or how do we do this while you raise children? And I can't say me raise children because I haven't, but how do you raise children or take care of parents or whatever you're doing and maintain this career? And women are the right people to mentor these women. Yeah, and I think all those are great points. And I think also to encourage people, women to step into leadership positions and to volunteer to do things and to promote themselves too. I think we can be great examples and we should definitely mentor our junior faculty and and trainees and, you know, starting as residents or fellows, but to really encourage them to to take leadership positions when they're available and to, to step into, to volunteer, to put themselves out there. I do think that as Sarah was mentioning, early on, virtually every speaker was a man. I don't even recall in the early parts of the society, it was very, very few women that were participants in the meeting itself. And now, as you said, it's really remarkably different. So I think it it takes that kind of just continuous pressure and encouragement and participation and volunteer and put yourself out there. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I feel like just society in general is more open about talking about all these things, right? Sexism, minority barriers that each individual faces in different settings. And just like you said, now is the time. So come together with a spirit of candor and um, empowerment and go forward as we're able. Yeah, I think that one thing that comes to mind about the diversity and inclusion, that's such a a strong part of what we're doing right now. I think that um, you really have to be intentional about it and really have to make an effort. And it can't just be by chance, you know, there's 50% women or more women than men in, in certain things. It has to be an intentional planned situation. So I think that's something that we can do moving forward is really talk about ways to be more intentional about our efforts. Uh, recently, when I was looking at our department, I was looking at the diversity and, you know, I'm thinking, well, yeah, we're re- really diverse, but I didn't really know the numbers. I didn't really know exactly, you know, and, and how did we get there? Did we, were we intentional or it just was it happenstance? So I think just being more purposeful and intentional about it is the important part. What are some of your all's favorite um, memories of the society? What would you want people to know about your your experiences 
and how they've shaped your career or just fun things that you got a chance to do because of the society? <laughs> I think my favorite thing was sitting by the pool with Mary and her husband. <laughs> I was gonna say, my favorite thing too. I was going to say there was a lot of communication that involved pools and hot tubs and that kind of thing. Um, and that was the fun part of the early part of the society. There's not that many people and a lot of the communication was kind of very much in the fun parts of the gatherings and get togethers. So. I don't know if people know Steve Roth very well, but sort of Harvard trained all the way through. And then I think at the time this happened, he may have already had left to run the ICU at Stanford, but just, and uh, we were at some resort, they might even been the Ritz, and he wanted to go for a run on the beach. So we went for a run on the beach and we finished our run and he just took everything off and, well, not he left his shorts on, but he just ran into the ocean. And I was like, he's so conservative. And he just, I don't know, I probably don't think it's funny, but to me, it was like, all of a sudden I saw Steve Roth completely different than I used to think of him when I was uh, training with him. So there were a lot of moments like that where I just saw people in a different way than I saw them from just being with them at work. Yeah, we, we conducted we conducted some business on the beach, too. I remember having a conversation with Yats and his crew uh, from MUSC and not only discussing the things that went on the day before, but, you know, arranging to write a letter of recommendation for Eric Graham to get his uh, grants. I'm like, oh, yeah, I can write that letter. No problem. <laughs> so there was business that was conducted also. <laughs> Haven't met Eric before this, but it worked out well. <laughs> Yeah, and it's funny, all the connections. I mean, people, we've made all these connections, both in the social parts of the meeting and in the, the business parts of the meeting um, that really are so longstanding, I mean, and lasting. And I think that it's really helped over the years just to have connections all over the country. You know, every single day I talk to people in different places to help fellows get positions elsewhere or to talk about people that are looking for jobs or, you know, those kinds of things. And to make those connections and have those connections across the country is really just remarkable. I mean, I, I think I probably know pretty much someone in every one of the programs around the country. It's really awesome part of this small community. Even the international connections, though, mm -hmm. we're able to make those as well, where we, we know people everywhere, which is fantastic. What would you say is the greatest gift that the society has given you and the thing that you're most proud of to have contributed? Well, for me, the greatest gift the society has given me are these friends that I have in the field. These people that I can call up at any time uh, to talk about anything. And I think that I wouldn't have met a woman if I attending these meetings and getting involved with committees and, you know, taking that leap as hard for people to believe that I am pretty shy and to be able to meet with people that I can connect with uh, at a meeting was really cool. I would agree with Nancy, 100%. Yeah, and having those connections across the country and, and friendships that have lasted over the course of 20 plus years um, has been phenomenal. And for them to, I think the society and this group of people have given me the inspiration to take this part of healthcare to places like Mississippi, where I am now, to be able to broaden, um, you know, the care that we can provide to patients. I think that's really been life-changing to me to see that we can change how care is given, you know, over the course of time. And you think back about the way even certain operations were done 
20 years ago, things that I've, we've been able to see a huge evolution in the quality of care and the outcomes over the course of time, which is really phenomenal. Do you all have any parting words as far as opportunities for the future of the society for those who might listen to this podcast about where you would like to see things go in the next few years? I mean, I would say that, you know, I would like to encourage young trainees and um, junior faculty to get involved and stay involved and get on, be on even a committee or whatever it is. You don't have to be the the chair of the committee, just participate, you know, and getting people out of their own world and into a bigger kind of thing is, I think, very helpful in the long run. They don't really see necessarily what's going to be in it for them in the long run, but I think you'll get so much more out of it the more you put into it. I think uh, really encouraging them in that way. And I'd I'd like, over time, our international membership has really grown, the nursing membership has really grown, and the society has changed in that way. I think continuing um, that trajectory, I think, will be really awesome, too. Yeah, I think for us, when things were always in person and we didn't have a pandemic and Zoom didn't become, or Teams didn't become a way of life, um, the networking, when we knew we'd see people every year or every other year, was really um, easy and natural. And now things take um, some effort and and we're all all tired of the virtual meetings and conferences we have to do. But I think this is also an opportunity to broaden our network and have more international connections and more national connections and really uh, bring people along who haven't been able to get involved because they haven't been at the meetings or don't know how to really meet one another. So I think we have to take advantage of the times as hard as they've been and as tired as we are of the internet and um, and uh, be creative and how we continue to grow these relationships and these networks that, you know, we've all benefited from. Well, thank you all so much. It's been a pleasure to hear your stories. Uh, thank you. Thank you all for putting this together. It's good to see old friends. <laughs> We certainly appreciate each of you for all the work that you've done and the contributions you've made to the society and for spending time talking with us. And I know each of you are um, an inspiration to me, certainly. So I appreciate the time that you've taken today. I know you're all busy. We enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all of our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.